God is good? All the time, all the time? Good, good, good. So you guys uh, start with me. Let's do, um, let's do our prayer together. It's kind of our, our uh, weekly, uh, once a month we say the different prayers. Uh, I had somebody reach out, ask me for one of these, and feel free. You know, I think it's great to um, take them, you know, just kind of put them on your phone, something to pray when you're struggling to pray. Let's say the sinner's prayer together, shall we? Father, forgive me, for I have sinned, and I fall short of the glory of God. I know the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I confess and believe that you are Lord and that your life is my salvation. Amen. I love that prayer. Um, that comes out of a, uh, you know, kind of a mashup of Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9 and 10, uh, what's known as the salvation road in Romans. Um, and then, of course, uh, we have some announcements, things we've been doing. Uh, this one, did you get the video by chance? Did he give you the cast video? Nope, not that yet. Don't, don't get... There you go. Chaos started this week, and this is what it felt like. Uh, I know uh, Brandon Rayanne probably felt a little bit like this. Give some volume, people. Not lying. It's a little crazy. Nope, you're good. I love this. I got some pictures after the fact that we did some activities. Natalie likes apples. They tried to stack them. This one made me nervous. I did think about COVID. <laughs> What's COVID? Kids were ready. We had about 18 Wednesday night. It was a lot of fun. We were feeding the youth leader. I was a little nervous. They were putting them on their faces and then eating them as snacks. Oh, the cup stack. <laughs> oh, we had a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, wasn't it? It's, uh, it's good to get the worship team for the kids back uh, practicing, having at it, and then uh, um, getting back to Wednesday nights. So, uh, and we've invited some volunteers. Brandon ran this last Wednesday. Uh, we have some different volunteers. It's just really a three-time commitment in the spring, and I think that's something we can build on the next uh, year and just invite. It is so much fun. If you get a chance, talk to Dylan and Aubrey and just ask It's uh, you know how you can plug in. It's been great. So, Okay, uh, we also want to be on a mission, and one of the things that we're doing is uh, sending uh, a few of you to Kenya. Now, 
Those that have come to the informational meeting or you've had questions, you've talked to Allie about it, it's a $400 deposit that we have to submit to our sister church that we're partnering with uh, February 19th, so this coming Sunday. So you have to text Allie, get to Allie, get the check to me to get to Mandy, and then we will write the check through the church. Uh, so far, it looks like we've got a couple, three planning to go. If you have any questions, talk to her right after, but Sunday will be the deadline for the registration because so much is involved. So here's the ways you can uh, support them and just be a part of the mission. So here's what we call our seeker, supporter, contributor, and legacy builders. Uh, this is what we encourage in participating with the church. So go to that next one. There you go. Uh, seekers, you're new here. You're, you're kind of figuring it out. Then everything here is for you to just, you know, we want to roll out the red carpet and bless you. Uh, supporters, you're the ones that, that help in those, those immediate needs. So if you want to help Kenya, you're like, oh, it makes sense. I ought to really help get them over there and help them bring the stories back to share with us. You can go on our website in the drop-down menu uh, where you say online giving. It'll offer for Kenyan trip. You can just make an online donation there. They're going to have envelopes where you can, we used to do the envelope system for Bridge the Gap. Now we're doing the meals and we're doing donations for the one-time meal that we will put on in March uh, with our uh, community churches. Um, but we're still going to have them do the envelopes that if you want to take a, a $10 envelope, a $25 envelope, a few envelopes and say, hey, I want to send you to Kenya. That's how we support them. Uh, our contributors are consistent givers. Uh, and then our legacy builders are our tithers, those who are, are giving um, really as a testimony of their commitment to future generations for the church. So, so that's a lot uh, to be looking forward to. Um, today, I want to get back into Job a little bit more. So we'll get into this, uh, this sermon series. And really, this was kind of the, the fun of it's not the way it's supposed to be. I don't want to go into the depths of Job as painful as Job gets. And there's, there's going to be a little bit of reason for that. Though. Sometimes we forget that Job has um, a little bit more on the surface to, to swim around and understand and appreciate it doesn't have to be when you feel like you've lost everything. Um, but sometimes we really do understand that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And I mentioned when Jordan put this slide together that, uh, you know, as much as somebody might be pulling you out or helping to pull somebody out, it might be the other way too, doesn't it? It might be like you feel like somebody's pulling you in, right, into skepticism, into fearfulness, into confusion, uncertainty. And what is Job teaching us about how we deal with the way it's not supposed to be. When these things happen and we don't seem to be able to control them, fix them, get out of them so easily, uh, you go, yea, through the valley of the shadow of death. And I know we're not supposed to fear evil, but there's a sense that it's, it's fear and trepidation, isn't it? When you don't know if it's just going to get any better. The world's going to rebound and be restored. What does it look like? So last week I told you the first lesson in Job it's okay to not be okay, right? It is okay to not be okay. Did I have that slide from Minot, North Dakota? This is great. So uh, Connor sent this to me after last week's sermon, which is, I'm, I gotta give it to you, Connor. You're listening, man. It's great. But I, I cracked up because I didn't see it first. It was from Minot. He sent this to me and it said North Dakota. And I was cracking up. And he goes, no, it's Minot. Minot, North Dakota. So a seventh grader makes a half-court shot to win $10,000. I was First of all, I'm a little nervous that um, your Facebook is listening right now. So now, did anybody else get Minot, North Dakota? Uh, 
Really? Like, why does it come up on your slide, on your, in your posts? Uh, so you have this reminder from last week, if you missed last week, you have a ticket to the best day, you know, paradise in the world. Wherever you'd want to go, you've got a ticket to go there. And then all of a sudden, you get to Minot, North Dakota in February. It's cold, it's miserable. That's the illustration we're talking about. What does it mean when you get somewhere and you're not supposed to be there? What does it look like? Well, I got news for you. This one was really funny. You know what they do in Minot, North Dakota? They still play basketball and have fun. They still have halftime. They still live their lives. In other words, it's okay that it's not the way it's supposed to be. Make the most of where you are, right? Uh, I really emphasize this in terms of being with others that you love. Most notably, the presence of God and also the presence of others. Job's friends sit with him for seven days without saying a word. They were okay that it was not something they needed to speak into. So it's okay to not be okay. Let's go to the the next one. Job 3 through 37. Pouring salt on Job's wounds. Now I'm not going to give you these, all these chapters. What is initially, you know, pretty much uh, 29 chapters and then an additional 8 chapters. We don't want to get into, um, like we're not going to read 34 chapters this morning. But there's this next segment of Job that is going to be a conversation between Job and his friends. And there's going to be this juxtaposition of whether or not God is just or God is mean if Job is a sinner and he's not admitting it or if God is warning Job of the future sinful nature that he is prone to do and he's just not acknowledging it. And that's these two positions that go back and forth. But I want to give you a little bit of a heads up. It's poetic. Usually people ask, they'll say, well, why is it written in this is in, in prose? And before we had printing presses, writing things down, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey written in prose, it was easier to remember. It was easier to recall, to recite. But there's also something else to it. When it's hard to explain logically, we can express things emotionally. And that's often in poetry and songs, Right? I'll give you a simple example. Usually when you're a new mom, you want to be excited about it, but most of you have had that postpartum depression, right? Do you know how bad nursery rhymes are? Have you ever sang a nursery rhyme to your kid? Rock, rock a bye, baby, in the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. And down will go baby, cradle and all. <laughs> that's, that's what you want your mom singing over you putting you to bed, right? Um, I thought this one was interesting. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. It starts off so sweet. You know, buy a mockingbird. But then the mom goes a little farther, right? And when that mockingbird doesn't sing, mama's gonna buy you a diamond ring. And if that diamond ring turns brass, it just gets worse. Like everything you're given that seems great, it's gonna fall apart. It's gonna be ruined. Mama's going to buy, and it says, uh, a looking glass. And if that looking glass gets broke, Mama's going to buy you a billy goat. What? But why, what are the nursery rhymes for? What are they, they dealing with? This kind of a way to express how you want soft and tender song, but you're sort of speaking. This is where blues music comes in, right? Um, a lot of Jewish music especially coming out of the, the tradition of the Exodus and we were slaves in Egypt and the struggles they had. 
uh, a lot of the tradition, it, it's the A minor chords, right? The, the minors, that, um, the, the chords with dissonance. And you, you kind of go, ah, it's a little off, but yet it kind of fits the mood, doesn't it? The words in the song fit what I'm really feeling, even though I'm just kind of dealing with it. How about poems? Um, there was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many children, she didn't know what to do. So she gave them all broth without any bread. And what? Whipped them all soundly and put them all to bed? <laughs> oh, that's so rough. That is a mom who has too many kids and is too broke and is like, I just don't. So you get, you get it, right? We get it. Um, I have a song I was going to play, but it, it just really is kind of too, um, too much into the emotional um, depths uh, of this topic. And I thought, I really want to stay with, with a, an approach that be, instead of being in the fire and what to do, we're kind of preparing when these moments come, right? But the song uh, was, is, comes out of Lamentations 3. And if you want to read Lamentations 3, we get Lamentations 3.23 is mercies are new every morning. But 1 to 22 is how much pain the lamenter, Jeremiah, is talking about. He is suffering. And he's pointing out that God is the one making this suffering upon him. Um, you, you chase me with arrows. You pierce me. You leave me along the side of the road. And then he gets through the pain and he comes to Rome, uh, uh, Lamentations 3.23. But... Your mercies are new every morning. Well, Job and his friends are going to have this back and forth written in prose, this kind of dealing with the pain that, that Job has experienced. And let's give you the two sides of it so we can deal with it, okay? First of all, they had seven days without speaking, and Job finally speaks. And you think his friends are going to be like, it's okay, tell us, feel, just share your feelings, right? So he says, Job chapter 3, verse 3, Let the day of my birth be erased, and the night I was conceived, let that day be turned into darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high. Let no light shine upon it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own. Let the cloud overshadow it. Let the darkness terrify it. Let that night that I was born be blotted out of the calendar, never again to be counted among the days of the year, never again to appear among the months. What's he sharing? He is so broken that he just doesn't even wish he was alive. And not only does he not wish he was alive, he wishes the day that he was born, that day would be punished, if you will. Now there's, there's a little bit of a challenge to this, a little bit of a rub. When, when most of us read it, you go, yeah, I've been there. But we don't, understand, we don't quite understand the second part of that, which is you're questioning God in some way with this, aren't you? No, 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 I just... Sometimes in my life, I don't feel like it's worth it. And my reminder to anybody who says that is, you are created a Mago Day. You are wonderfully and magnificently made. Now, the world may not be right, but you, you are a beautiful creature of God. You were created in his image. So when you decide that you're not important or you're not worth it, you're telling God that he made a mistake and God doesn't make mistakes. And there's a sense that Job is, is taking an indirect shot at God to basically say, why would I be so good to you? Why, why have I done right by you? 
and then calamity strikes. Now, let's give you a little bit of, of context, historical context. This really sets up Job better than we understand today uh, in our culture. We're looking at 2,000 years before Christ. This is probably a story in the, in the time of the patriarchs, of Abraham and Isaac. This is when they were nomads. They weren't, uh, they weren't in, in commerce of gold and silver. Um, cities were, were starting to be a thing, but they weren't as pronounced. So if you were wealthy, you had flock, you had cattle. And if you were blessed, even in Jesus' day, 50%, 25 to 50% of the babies born died. You were lucky to have one in four or, or, or a handful of your children make it to adulthood. You know now why they celebrate the bar mitzvah, right? That, that they turned 13, they became an adult. When we talk about it at the age of accountability, you're old enough to understand. Part of that was you're finally of age. We're not terrified of you not being able to take care of yourself if something happens to me. You're old enough that you can, you can survive. So go back to Job's story. Here Job is, kind of middle age. His children are raised. How many children? Seven sons and three daughters. Ten children have made it to adulthood. This is impressive. He's been blessed. And he has so much wealth in terms of his flock, right? But now they've all been taken from him. So he went from the pinnacle of blessed to having nothing. What does Eliphaz, what do his friends say? I'm going to read out of Job chapter 4, verse 2 for a little bit. Eliphaz finally gets a word to say and speak to Job in his pain. He understands that he, he's miserable. He doesn't know why God has cursed him and he wishes he was never born. Eliphaz says these very kind words. Ready? Will you be patient? Let me say a word. Who could keep from speaking out? In the past, you have encouraged many people, Job. You've strengthened those who are weak. Your words have supported those who are failing. You have encouraged those with shaky knees. But now trouble strikes, and you lose heart. It's like he's saying, you pathetic soul. You're terrified when all of a sudden trouble strikes you. That's come to all of us, but you have been so blessed, and all of a sudden it strikes you. And doesn't your reverence for God give you any confidence? Doesn't your life of integrity give you any hope? Stop and think. Do the innocent die when they have upright, when, have the, when have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble, cultivate evil, will harvest the same. I know, you didn't quite catch that. Job just lost his 10 children, and Eliphaz is saying, when have the righteous survived? What's he saying to Job's kids? You know why your kids died, Job? Because of something they did. He doubles down in verse 9. Remember, they died from a tornado, right? The winds from the four corners of the earth came and lifted the roof and dropped it upon his children. Verse 9. A breath from God destroys them. They vanish in a blast of his anger. Thanks, buddy. That's the most encouraging thing anybody could have told me in my time of grief. Back and forth, his friends argue with Job. Now, again... This is the, the, the construct of the story is that while Job in his personal life has suffered the extreme of crisis and pain, we, have, we see that in layers, don't we? We see that in ways that we're like, okay, that is at the worst, at the epitome of pain. And we could probably see it on a more surface level of just sometimes a shadow of death, a shadow of suffering. But the argument is still the same, isn't it? 
The question we're going to ask is what Job is positioning against his friends, and his friends are positioning against Job. Here's what it is. Job is saying over and over, I am innocent. I did not deserve this. And so what he's arguing is he said, so either God doesn't rule the world justly, or God himself is unjust. That's what Job's asking. Point A, God isn't in control. If, if this happened to me, either God let it happen because he couldn't stop it, or God is mean and an uncaring God. Now, how many of us have had things happen in our lives where we go, God, if you are the God of the universe, you can fix this. You can cure the cancer. You can make this person well. You can bring this person back to life. You can put this person back in my arms. You can make this better. And when it doesn't happen, you ask this question, God, are you not the God who's in the control of the world and the universe? Or God, are you just mean? That's the, that's the dissonance, right? When I talked about the chords of dissonance, that's the dissonance we feel with the way we believe it can be. This kingdom of God, on earth as it is in heaven, and the way it is. And the more that, that we get strained with the difference, the harder it gets, the worse it is. We ask this more. Now, Job's friends, on the other hand, they're saying, no, Job, you don't get it. It's not that God is unjust. God is just. It's something you did. Now, here's the two things that Job's friends present. You either really did something that we didn't know about. You sinned, and it was just not seen. Your kids, they sinned. It wasn't visible to the world, but something happened. Something you did made this happen. Or B, God is warning you about something where your heart is trending. Right? You are, you are going to make some fatal mistake, and God is getting your attention. Now, I know you're looking at it going, what? Are those our only two options? We only get to decide that God is either not in control or he's mean, or I did something really bad, or God is correcting me from doing something in the future really bad. Man, does that seem impossible. Neither one of those makes sense. Well, I got news for you. Towards the end, a fourth friend shows up. He kind of just shows up out of nowhere. Nobody even talks about him until Job chapter 32. It says, Job's three friends refused to reply further to Job because he kept insisting on his innocence. Then Elihu became angry. He was angry because Job refused to admit that he had sinned and that God was right to punish him. And he also was angry with the best friends, these three friends, for they made God appear to be wrong by their inability to answer, God's, answer Job's argument. Elihu gets one thing right. He understands that they both are in some way wrong. It's not A or B, it's C. What is that C? I'm going to give you the second lesson in Job. It is okay to question God. Now trust me, when I was younger, I did not think that that was true. I felt like God was in charge and we just had to go along with it. You didn't question God. You didn't challenge authority. You allowed what happened to just be his ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. But I have to admit, there was some part of me that did not understand God on a personal level because of that, that strain of never dealing with the fact that he is either not in control or he is just not nice. 
And then things start happening in life. And any of you with any seasons of life know this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And God, I want to know why. And by the way, biblically, throughout Scripture, God is constantly questioned. Habakkuk cries out to God, pleading with him to hear him, to finally answer him. Gideon questions God when he wants to send him with only 300 into battle. Abraham and Sarah question him over and over about why they were late in life and still the promise did not be fulfilled of having children. The psalmist struggled to understand God over and over. In John chapter 20, doubting Thomas questioned whether or not Jesus was really resurrected. Peter routinely questioned Jesus to the point that Jesus turned to him and said, get behind thee, Satan. <laughs> it's not wrong to question God. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why. First of all, let's establish questioning God is not accusing God. There's a difference between asking and accusing. I kind of find that interesting. Um, if you have children, have you ever had children ask you a question with an accusing tone? Right? From the toddler who comes in and goes, did you eat my cookie? And then you just want to shout back, I paid for the cookies. I brought the cookies. I'm the provider of all your cookies. Yes, I ate your cookie. <laughs> okay, that's the, you don't accuse, right? Like, watch that. There's an interesting asking and accusing. The teenager, did you move my car? Did you take my car? Like, well, did I, did I, pay, for, I pay for your car. So if I want to move your car, if I want to take your car, like, ask me. Just don't, don't accuse me. I understand. And you'll probably do this at work. You question your boss. Sometimes you go, okay, I have a right to question and ask questions, but I shouldn't go in there with sort of an attitude that says, I know better than you. That's what Adam and Eve's sin was. It wasn't that they, they had questions about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the fact they never asked about it. They just took it in their own hands. We know better than God. Now that, that's the sin. But it's not wrong to ask God. And here's why. You're thinking it anyway. I mean, have you ever done that where you're like, I just, I don't want to ask God. I, I'm thinking it, but I don't want to ask God because if I say it out loud, I feel like he's going to strike me dead. You're thinking it. Anybody watch Ghostbusters? How did they get destroyed? 1984 Ghostbusters. Bill Murray looks at them all and he says, They've, this is what is going to happen. Whatever you're thinking is going to destroy be the destroyer of all. Don't think it. What'd they think of? The Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. The destroyer of all. I couldn't help it. It just popped into my head. It was one of the comforting things when I was a child. I remember roasting marshmallows over the open fire. It was beautiful. And then the staple of marshmallows climbing up the building. Right? You're thinking that it's already there. Have the conversation. This is a real challenge in your relationships. You're thinking it, and you think the other person doesn't know you're thinking it. They know. You ever walked into a room and you cut the tension with a knife? You're like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to bring it up. You already did. You walked into the room. You know the other person knows. Why not talk about it? The healthy response that God is okay with is asking the questions. That's the important. And here's why you ask. Because through your grief, through your struggles, through the it's not the way it's supposed to be, this tension, you go from why 
to how. That's why. You want to ask the questions because you want to discern God's will. What is God's will for your life? What does this suffering have to do with the rest of my life? And I know it's hard. When you grieve the loss of a loved one, there's the why. Why did you let this happen? Why? At some point, you've got to decide that it's still worth living, that the other relationships around you should be a priority too. And you sort of navigate that grieving process to still grieve, but then to move forward and function. And then you find out other people who have suffered like you need someone who's been through that to tell them how to move forward. When they're ready, don't force it on them. And for you too, you go from why to how. Now I want you to just take a minute, if you have somebody next to you, and just think, what is something that was difficult for you to go through in life that you have then learned from? And how have you used it to shape others, to talk to others? Have you ever had your story be something that came up with somebody else around you, be it work, be it your own crisis? Go ahead, take a minute and talk to somebody next to you and say, you know what, yeah, this was something I went through and this is somebody that I was able to share my story with. Go ahead. You're like, I didn't realize we were participating this morning. Yes, you are. What's your story? How do you function? How do you move on? And how do you help others? That's our mission, isn't it? Dear Lord, help me help you help others. And can I really help others help others? Can I be a young mom that went through a difficult time and inspire other young moms? Can I be a, a dad trying to navigate challenges with a, a rebellious teenager and then see the next generation trying to raise kids that might be rebellious teenagers? Can I help somebody who filed for bankruptcy is absolutely broke beyond broke and tell them, you may think that I've got it all figured out. I was where you are. And I ask the same questions you're asking. And when you're ready, there will be a way through it. There is a how. So you might find yourself in Minot, North Dakota. You may be there because you made the mistake. You sinned. You got on the wrong plane. You might be there because of the sins of others. It might be the pilot who just got distracted, got on the wrong plane. How that happens, I don't know, but it's his fault. Or her fault. And maybe, maybe you look to God and you say, it's not my fault, it's not the pilot's fault, but I still landed here. And you ask God why. And just maybe, you'll get to the place in Minot, North Dakota, where you figure out how to appreciate where you are in this season of life, even when it's not the way it's supposed to be. It is with the God who is supposed to be. And somebody may just need to hear that story from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a season of celebration that we are looking forward to, weddings and babies born and just so much joy, 
We also know it can create a sense of fear, uncertainty, ownership of more responsibility, not only for those young families, but for the church. We ask the question of raising those kids in this world, in this day and age. And we might look upon those who have done so for generations and say, how did you do it? That their story, their suffering becomes our testimony. And I thank you, Lord, that even though it's not easy, it is so possible. Help us to not be afraid to ask you the questions why, that you might help us get to a place of how. How we might use the most challenging circumstances to be inspired, to endure, to bless others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.